Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to a milestone episode. This is the 25th installment of the Essential X Lapsed, where well, we're going to pick up with our big cliffhanger from last issue and episode. Uh, we've got the return of Magneto, and we'll find out all about how he came back and uh, what his plans are here in this very episode. Let's hop right in. This is X-Men number 18 out of March 1966 cover date. The story is called If Iceman Should Fail, dash, dash. And um, you remember how we had that one guy in the letters page not too long ago saying, you know, I'm going to boycott Marvel with the mosquitoes until you say something nice about uh, Artie Simek. Remember that? And you also remember how Stan is a little bit reactionary? Well, yeah, that's... Uh, that is really illustrated here in our credits here because we get a fair story by Stan Lee, adequate pencils by Werner Roth as Jay Gavin, tolerable inking by Dick Ayers, and the world's greatest lettering by Artie Simek. So uh, Stan's given a, he's throwing a bone to whoever that was that wrote that letter. Uh, it's also worth noting we have uncredited coloring by uncredited. Cover price, 12 cents. Let's hop right in. We open with the X-Men, Sans Iceman, plus Professor X, floating away inside that steel gondola attached to the hot air balloon, and uh, they're all kind of knocked out. Down below, Magneto shakes his fists at his foes as they soar to their doom, before turning his attention to the mansion itself. He decides to lift it out of the ground with his matchless magnetic power, and just before he slams it back down to the ground, smashing it into many, many pieces, he... Realizes what delicious irony it would be if he just took up residency there So, uh, he sets it down gently and proceeds to move on in Now Stan offers us a footnote suggesting that we all probably want to know how Mags managed to escape the stranger And he promises to fill us in on that ASAP But first, Magneto's gotta foam up the Cerebro machine And, uh, he does so by melting it Okay uh, in any event, Magneto is then taken surprise by a ringing at the doorbell. And it's the Worthingtons, Warren II and his wife, What's-Her-Face. Now, this brings us right up to where we left things off last issue. Now, it might be worth noting here that uh, Werner Roth draws him an ugly Magneto. And I mean, of course, mileage may vary on art, but I find him quite unpleasant to look at. Anyway, the Worthingtons are here and they want to see their boy. And so, Magneto uses his magnetic mental attraction on them to cause them to get really, really sleepy, and they retire upstairs to a waiting bedroom. Our baddie then dramatically poses, all but certain that everything is going his way, and the only thing left between him and certain victory is taking out Iceman, who, I might remind you, is not only the youngest X-Man at only 16 years old, but also the weakest. So speaking of Bobby, let's head over to the hospital and check in on our boy. Now the doc is about to inject him with that experimental sulfa medication, and is doing so via a laser-induced hypodermic, which is to say a damned gun. He blasts Bobby in the shoulder, which either silences Bobby's delirium, as he's no longer mumbling to himself, or just plain kills him, since he's no longer mumbling to himself. I guess we'll find out soon. Back to the balloon. Professor X struggles, as he's still got that mental wave distorter attached to his dome. And over the course of three very ugly panels, the prof is able to summon enough residual mental power to kabak the thing to bits. He then wakes up Gene and Hank, informing them both that they're not injured. It's like, hey guys, you're not injured, wake up. So, that's all it takes. 
Now, Jean's first words are, Magneto's alive! To which Xavier asks her to tell him something he doesn't already know. Charles then tells Jean and Hank to wake Scott and Warren. Why he needed them to do this, I couldn't tell you. It's not like they did anything special, they just shook them both awake. He could have probably done that himself. Uh, Jean asks how Magneto could have possibly escaped the awesome stranger. And Xavier says they'll worry about that a little bit later on, and indeed, they will. Back to the mansion. Magneto sets his diabolical plan in motion. He magnetically disassembles Xavier's lab, and then reassembles the bits and bobs in a more usable way for him. You see, what he's planning on doing is scanning the Worthingtons to analyze their mutant-producing body cells. And he'll duplicate them and start his own black market clone farm. And so, he proceeds to scan the Richies while creepily leering into the bedroom window. And by bedroom window, I don't mean a window to the outside. It's just a window from the lab into the bedroom. So, uh, we could probably guess that this is Jean's room regularly, since uh, we probably have a peeper or two in the uh, mansion. Anyway, it might be worth noting that the Warringtons are sleeping in separate beds which might make you wonder how they managed to procreate a single mutant, much less an army of dupes. Back to the balloon. The kids are fretting over the rapidly dissipating oxygen in the gondola, and Xavier tells them all to shut up so he can think. He touches his temples and is able to deduce that Magneto has the Worthingtons captured at the mansion. Warren, as you might imagine, is uh, pretty freaked out. And, of course, Xavier tells him to shut up so he can think as well. Chuck decides to try to send a psychic call to Iceman... And, well, what do you know? It actually does the trick. Bobby wakes up, and equipped with all the information about what's going down, he ice slides all the way back to the mansion. I probably shouldn't even mention that last issue it took Charles and Scott an hour to get home driving at breakneck speed. So, means it probably took Iceman quite a bit longer to get home, but, uh, nah, we won't even bother. Anyway, while the X-Men wait for something to happen, Professor X decides it's time to tell a story. You know, in an enclosed space that is rapidly being deprived of oxygen, why not run your mouth a bit? That sounds logical. So it's here where we're going to find out exactly how Magneto managed to escape the stranger. You see, Magneto and Toad were basically just plopped down on a planet while the stranger went off to explore other galaxies. And they've been alone here for months, with the ability to roam free since, I mean, there's little threat that they're going to ever get away. Here's the thing, though. The stranger just so happened to keep a spaceship graveyard on this very same planet. And so, Magneto uses his hoodoo to reactivate one of the rockets. Toad giddily goes to follow his master inside, but is kicked on out of there. Magneto proceeds to blast off back to Earth, so a rollicking story, no? Anyway, after spilling the beans, Xavier tells the kids to shut up again so he can harness all of his mental energy in order to undergo the most difficult thought projection of his entire life and without the Mento helmet to boot. Now, by now, Bobby has arrived back at the mansion, so I guess we can assume that that story took about eight hours to tell. He notices that there's a light on at the lab and assumes that that's where Magneto must be, and he crafts an ice ladder in order to peep on in. But he falls off, only managing to save himself by use of a frigid lasso he loops around the edge of the building. I I don't know why we needed that, but we got it. Inside, Magneto dramatically flips a switch, and this sets off a chain of events that begins to birth a bunch of Silver Age gold balls. And we got us a gaggle of Worthington clones about to be born. But then, the process slams to a halt. What could have possibly happened? Hmm. 
Well, we shift over to the Worthington bedroom to see that Bobby has concocted an ice shield over the folks, thus blocking the magnetic mutant machine's rays. Magneto pops his head back through the perv window and seethes. He then hurls a bunch of metal stuff at Iceman, who manages to whip up an ice shield just in the nick of time. He then uses his shield as a sled and then Bill Buckner's himself right between Maggie's legs. Magneto rushes to follow, but slips on some ice. He proceeds to fall down some stairs into an ice cylinder, which leads into an igloo on the front lawn, where our baddie spins around a few times. Now, once he's able to regain his balance and composure, Magneto uses his magnetic powers to seal the igloo. Um, Might want to have this ice tested. Uh, So he and Bobby are stuck inside the igloo. And I gotta wonder, are we getting close to that scene where Iceman asks Magneto if he can wear his helmet? Like we saw in the uh, special on Maynex Lapsed? I mean, it's gotta be soon, right? they They wouldn't lie to us. Anyway, back to the balloon. Professor X has come up with a plan. He's got Cyclops there to fire an optic blast the size of a pinpoint to put a hole in the gondola and balloon in order to lower them back to Earth slowly. Then, when they're just a few feet above ground, Jean is to tax out her TK and act as a break. I'm not sure why we needed to wait quite this long to attempt this plan, but whatever. It works. It works so. So the X-Men are back on Earth, and none the worse for wear. They then attack Magneto, smashing through the igloo, which, I mean, isn't much of a surprise. Everybody's able to break through Bobby's ice structures, so why not the X-Men too? Anyway, it's fighting time. Magneto grabs Bobby and threatens to kill him if the X-Men come any closer. Only, he doesn't realize that Angel is swooping in behind him at that very moment. So Warren socks Magneto and grabs Iceman, flying him to safety. Professor X then calls for the X-Men to... Stop fighting. Hmm. Now Magneto's confused, and so Charles points to the sky behind him. Like, hey, look. Look at that. And Magneto's all, yeah, right, like I'm gonna fall for that one. But, here's the thing. There actually is something behind Magneto, and it is... The Stranger. Also, the planet Saturn. So it must be an incredibly clear night up in Salem Center. Uh, Magneto realizes that his captor is actually here, and so he hops into his Magna car and skidoos. Hank checks in on the lab and sees the clone farm, and they rush inside just as the clones vanish. But how? Well, Bobby reveals that he simply moved the magnetic mutant machine, which stopped the Worthingtons from procreating. Speaking of the Richies, they wake up, feeling like a literal million bucks. We wrap up with them having a meal with Xavier and his students. Gene, unsurprisingly, is wearing an apron and serving them all. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, we get a new character. Who's ready to meet the Mimic? But first, let's talk about this issue here. And I think we're going to hit, like, basically all of the essential X-Lapsed bingo here uh, right off the bat. Um, This was a silly issue. I had fun reading it. And it definitely feels like Stan is getting a little overworked in that he's got to script all of these books. He's got all of his side projects. He's got the Merry Marvel Marching Society. He's got Skate 800 letters pages. I mean, he's a, he's a busy man. There's only one man, too. So uh, yeah, I think uh, these uh, last few X-Men issues have been a little bit um, wanting. And he'll be leaving after next issue as scripter. So this is his second-to-last issue in the uh, hot seat. Uh, He'll still be listed first in our credits as editor, but uh, we're getting to uh, the end of his run as the sole writer of the X-Men. And, yeah, I love Stan, but uh, it's not a moment too soon because these stories are not the greatest things in the world here. This book almost, like, defies metacomics physics here where it's a one-and-done for the most part. 
but it also feels decompressed. <laughs> it feels like we spent way too much time and we got way too much information. It's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a, uh, a walking contradiction of a book here. And while we get some information, we don't get, we don't get some other information here. Because, frankly, I wasn't overly concerned with how Magneto escaped from the stranger, especially with the way they gave it to us with a page of him finding a rocket and leaving. And it's like, okay, that's, that's it? All right. What we don't learn, though, I mean, let's go back to the earlier Magneto appearances here. What was his entire purpose? His entire purpose was locating the X-Men's headquarters. Every single issue, he was sending the Brotherhood out to try... Like, they were literally going door-to-door looking for the X-Men's uh, headquarters. And here he is, just knowing it? How did he figure this out? We didn't find out how he learned where to go. That, to me, is a uh, more interesting story. Also, isn't Mastermind still at the mansion, like, in his stone statue form? Wouldn't Magneto have come across that, unless he's in a closet somewhere that he didn't open? I, I really don't know. And also, this is another one where Professor X kind of upstages the X-Men. I mean, the issue with this story is, is if Iceman should fail. So it's all about Iceman saving the day, and he doesn't. <laughs> he really doesn't. He doesn't really even do anything. Um, he does move the magnetic mutant machine at the very end to make sure the Worthingtons stop procreating, but he really didn't hold his own against Magneto. He made him slip, but then it looked like he was about to be killed until Professor X is like, hey, look behind you. I made the psychic call to the stranger. Turn around. He's going to get you. It's just uh, another case of the, the old trope of uh, Professor X being... The infallible one, the one who saves the day over and over and over again. You wonder why the X-Men are even part of this book sometimes. And uh, hopefully, when we have our uh, new creative team come in, maybe they'll uh, maybe they'll move Professor X into the background and give the X-Men a little bit more uh, a little bit more quality panel time rather than just standing there talking and wondering what the professor's next step is going to be. The art here uh, isn't my favorite. As mentioned over the course of the past several episodes here, the Werner Roth stuff is uh, not all that pleasant to look at all the time. Uh, there are panels here that look quite nice, but um, the ones that don't, really don't. Uh, and I've mentioned Werner Roth's faces before the facials here are just not pleasant at all. But I think that's about all I have to say about this issue before I start just uh, repeating myself and being too too down on a book that I actually had fun with. I hate to pick nits just for the sake of picking nits. So uh, let's move on into the letters page here before I, uh, before I do that. <laughs> now, let's start with Fred in Texas. Now, he thought the art in X-Men number 15 sucked. He says that Marvel Girl looked about as feminine as the Hulk... Which makes me ask, has Fred seen the way that Jack Kirby draws some women? I mean, we've talked about Zelda. Uh, now, he compares Cyclops to Nick Fury, shouting orders at the Howlers. He thinks Iceman's design blows chunks. He thinks that he shouldn't have eyes while iced up. And he wants Hank to give Gene a spanking. For real. He says that. I want to see Hank give Gene a spanking. A much-deserved spanking. Now, Stan responds that the bullpen actually thinks that the Hulk is prettier than Gene, which uh, is one of those great Stan Lee uh, answers, if ever we heard one. We got Yuta in Tokyo. Now, they fell in love with Marvel while living in Canada and still loves him in Japan. But they don't get many Marvel monthlies in Japan, so for the love of Pete, Stan, could you send more books their way? Now, Yuta even translates the comics for their friends. 
And Stan offers a no prize for the translating duties, but doesn't offer any help on the international distribution department there. He is only one man, after all, and uh, he's quite a busy one at that. Next up, Glenn in California. Now, he suggests that Marvel made X-Men a monthly just so they'd have more opportunities to fill out letters pages. He then accuses Stan of only reading letters that are sent in on Merry Marvel Marching Society stationery. He then offers Stan a saying for Doctor Strange to use. <sighs> and it's, by the oranges of Hieronymus Bosch. Mm-hmm, okay. Stan suggests that if he were to use, by the oranges of Hieronymus Bosch, that Glenn would probably sue him the second he saw it in print. He then assures all the readers that he reads all the fan mail, no matter what it's written on. And if you're wondering who or what a Hieronymus Bosch is, um, he was a Dutch painter who was born somewhere around 1450 and passed in 1516. I don't know much about him, but a cursory bit of research doesn't mention much about his use of the color orange. So, I don't know. Maybe uh, Glenn knows something I don't. If you're listening, Glenn, let me know. Next up, Robert in Toronto. He wants Cyclops to marry Jean Grey, and uh, he probably doesn't want it to wait 30 years for this to happen. Stan kind of hems and haws about the budding romance, citing that, uh, hey, you know what? The X-Men have been pretty busy of late, so maybe somewhere down the line. Steve in New York City. He loved Marvel's collector's item classics, and he loves seeing Professor X get the spotlight in X-Men. Uh, now, Stan is pleased with all the nice letters they've received about MCIC, and... Uh, uh, personally, for me, uh, I think we've seen enough of Professor X in the spotlight, so I'd like to see him not <laughs> in the spotlight from uh, this point on, but I guess that will remain to be seen. Tom in Ohio. Loved X-Men number 14 and is a huge fan of Jay Gavin's art. Now he says if Angel's wings didn't sprout until he was at military school, then he's not really a mutant. He says he can only be a mutant if he was born with the things that give him his powers. And he dares Stan to try and walk his way out of this one. Well, Stan simply says that Warren was born a mutant. It just took 13 years for the wings to sprout. So I guess we could say challenge accepted by Stan there, and he knocked it out of the park. Now, as a fan of my vintage, this all sounds right, because we were always told that mutant powers would manifest around the time of puberty. So, sounds good to me. Next up, Laura in New York City. Now, she starts off her letter by stating that she is, in fact, a g-g-g-g-g-girl. And suddenly, she gets the 1966 approximation of 1,000 new Twitter followers. Now, she reads X-Men, Fantastic Four, and the Avengers, likes the X-Men best of all. She asks Stan why he doesn't act sober, citing that the blurbs on the covers and his responses to letters are, quote, all over the place. And she wonders why Stan makes fun of mutants in the letters pages, which I don't recall seeing, but I'm certainly not about to argue with a girl. Um... Now, Stan replies by calling her a pussycat, and he apologizes for acting so silly. So, another perfect Stan answer. Alan in Missouri. He's been reading Marvel for one year and 13 months. How does... hmm, One year and 13 months? Why not just say two years and... Okay. Uh, Thinks Marvel's the best. Thinks that X-Men 15 was so good it was beyond description. Which, I guess that's one way of putting it. Uh, He hopes that 16 will be even better. And he wants to see more of The Stranger. Uh, Stan reminds us that we got a panel of The Stranger this time out. And he thanks Alan for saying Marvel's the best. And he wonders who it is putting all those other books on the newsstand racks. So, uh, Stan's, you know, he's getting spicy about the competition here. And he will continue to do so over the next several uh, installments. Billy in Massachusetts claims to be 
a sophisticated Marvel marcher. And he thanks Stan for providing the service of Marvel Comics. Because the stories, they're entertaining, yes, but they also provide us with a moral lesson. And uh, I think we get our very first Make Mine Marvel in these letters pages as well. And he says, Until the angel malts, Namor turns green, and Spidey falls off a wall, Make Mine Marvel. Now Stan gloms on to the fact that uh, Marvel is providing a service, and he suggests that, uh, hey, you know, the books are so great they ought to be tax-deductible. And yeah, I would co-sign that in, in a New York minute. A heartbeat, even. Let's, let's make comics tax-deductible. Let's get that on a, on a ballot somewhere. Next up, Steve in California. He loved X-Men number 15, and he hopes Stan doesn't F things up by hooking Scott and Gene up. He doesn't like Spider-Man being a mush in his stories, and he doesn't want to see that happen in the X-Men. He liked the cover of X-Men 15 and just wishes there were more colors used. To which Stan worries about uh, how Steve received X-Men number 17 since that cover was completely red. And uh, he also isn't so sure about the Scott Gene romance thing just yet. Walta in Pennsylvania will be our final letter. And he says, How come Xavier wasn't able to use his mental abilities on the Sentinel in X-Men 14, but he was able to shut down a whole fleet of them in X-Men 15? Well, that's a pretty great question, right? And I'm sure Stan has a very logical explanation. No, no, he does not. Stan claims to be already hard at work writing X-Men number 20, and uh, says he forgot all about the finer details of the Sentinel story, so whoops. Uh, He goes ahead and offers a no prize to anyone who might be able to lend him a hand. From here, let's head into the bullpen bulletins here, and uh, we're going to hit all the departments of the bullpen. We're going to start with the How About That department. Now, Stan was interviewed on the Tommy Marvin radio show, The World Today from Mutual Network. And also, the September 1965 issue of Esquire included the Hulk and Spider-Man on their list of 28 people who count most on campus. And uh, if you have a subscription to Esquire, you could probably find this thing, because uh, they do have classic Esquires on the internet. This might come as a huge surprise, but I do not have a subscription to Esquire, so I am unable to check that out. And from the five or six sample pages from that issue that are available for everyone to see, unfortunately, the uh, list of 28 people who count most on campus was not among them. Next up, the Did You Know department. Now, did you know, serious collectors of Marvel lore can fill in holes by picking up Marvel's collector's item classics. So someone please, please pick that book up. Uh, Did you know, the majority of Marvel letter hacks are four continuing stories rather than one and done, so they like the long stories. Did you know, the Merry Marvel Marchers have been coloring in their MMMS stationery when they send in their missives. And uh, I wonder if they'll get credited for coloring. Hmm. Did you know Stephen Strange wasn't the first Doctor Strange in a Marvel comic? The first Doctor Strange was actually a villain in an Iron Man story, but don't ask Dan which issue he appeared in because he's already forgotten. Well, good thing I'm here, and good thing we have a Marvel wiki, because uh, I was able to find out that this is Carlo Strange, and he first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 41, May 1963 cover date, and uh, according to the Marvel wiki, he only really appeared this one time. He showed up in, like, handbooks and stuff, and I think a... uh, a Marvel's story from Kurt Busiek, but uh, I think this was basically it. Into the strictly personal department. Now, Stan G., Marvel artist and colorist, just drew an ad for a large soft drink company which could be seen in Times Square. Stan says it looks like something out of Millie the Model, which makes sense, since Stan G. is the artist on that mag. Mickey Spillane, the author of Mike Hammer, he used to script for Marvel. 
And it's true, he wrote several stories between 1942 and 1943. They include All Winners Comics, issues 3, 6, and 9, Submariner Comics 4 and 6, Marvel Mystery Comics number 28 through 37, Joker Comics 1 and 2, Human Torch 9 and 10, and USA Comics 6 through 9. Bill Everett, the creator of Namor and the artist on Daredevil number 1, is looking to rejoin the Marvel bullpen on a permanent basis. And it uh, looks like he sort of kind of will. Uh, Marvelites will see him in the credits some more heading into the early 70s. Finally, Roy Thomas can read hieroglyphics. Okay. Into the Department of Utter Confusion, as if the Roy Thomas and hieroglyphics wasn't confusing enough. Uh, Marvel comics are worldwide, mostly. Marvel Mania is sweeping Mexico, where the Hulk is known as La Mole, The Thing is El Colosso, Daredevil is El Dynamo, and Doctor Strange is Doctor Centella, or Centella. Now, Marvels can be found all over Latin America, except Cuba, because the bearded one has banned all comics as subversive literature, and Stan considers that a compliment. Finally, our wrap-up. Marvel mags are easier to carry than books full of Shakespeare, so saith Irving Forbush. So, um... Dump your Romeo and Juliet and pick up uh, some strange tales, I guess. Uh, the MMMS gets 26 new members, and nobody really stands out. No Dick Hurts the third this time, so we'll just uh, move on to the mighty Marvel checklist. Start with Fantastic Four number 49, which features more Galactus and the Silver Surfer. Spider-Man 35 has the return of the Molten Man. Avengers number 26, whatever happened to Giant Man and the Wasp? Daredevil number 14, Foggy and Karen return. There's a crisis in the courtroom and more Kazar, Kazar. Thor 126, you'll never guess. You'll never in a million... It's Thor vs. Hercules, again! Tales to Astonish 78, there's a new baddie for the Hulk, and it's Conrad Zaxxon. And a new old baddie for Submariner, and it's the Puppet Master. Tales of Suspense 76, Iron Man vs. Ultimo, which we're going to be saying for like the next... 17 episodes, I think. Uh, Captain America vs. Batroc Z Leaper. Still. Strange Tales 143. Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. captured by Mentalo and the Fixer. And Doctor Strange does it again. What's it? Well, Stan ain't telling. I guess we gotta buy the book and find out. Sergeant Fury number 28. The Howlers vs. Baron Strucker. Again. Fantasy Masterpieces number one. Now, we already read this blurb because Stan really, really wants you to buy it. Marvel Collector's Item Classics number two. We get early Ant-Man, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man stories unabridged. Which I take it to mean that uh, maybe a lot of the reprints are kind of edited for... Maybe not for content, but for size, length. I don't know. So, I guess getting these all in their uh, original glory is something that uh, fans of the day would be very excited for. But... That is our Mighty Marvel checklist, and uh, before we go, we're going to head into the ads here. We're not going to be doing ads every day, but uh, just when something kind of stands out, we do have a few ads here that do. Uh, First, we do have our MMMS page, and if you all remember that Hulk sweatshirt last time, you know, many of us already knew what the mystery image on the back of it was, but uh, we couldn't see it because Dr. Doom's cape was in the way. Here, we get to see it in all its glory, both sides, and it's still yours for $2.98. Now, Iceman is our pitch man here, and he promises that the sweatshirt will make you more attractive to people, dogs, and mirrors. So, he wouldn't lie to you. Our first non-Marvel ad is the Record Riot. 60 smash hits for the price of a two-sided Hulk sweatshirt. So you can annoy your parents with rip-off versions of Beatles songs and many, many more. Including, 
Um, 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 um. And uh, that ain't me stuttering there, pussycats, uh, as, I, as I am known to do. I do um a lot, but that is actually the name of a song, apparently. Uh, Surfing Bird, which I think uh, you'd probably want to drive your head into the wall after listening to. I Am Henry the Eighth I Am, The Jolly Green Giant, and who could ever forget, The Little Old Lady from Pasadena. Now, you would think like this was like a Ronco 8-track ad, if only it featured England, Dan, and John Ford Coley. It's uh, pretty wild. And now, these come to you on 10 long playing 45s. You're basically looking at less than a nickel a song here, gang. Unless you're in Canada, and I think it's like $5 a song at that point. Our second and final ad is the Joker's Special. I mentioned that we get these things in almost every issue. It's the, uh, the gags. You play them on your friends, your neighbors, your priests, your <laughs> teachers. I don't know. Uh, ten rib-splitting jokes and fullers for the cost of a six-foot-tall Spider-Man poster. Now, this includes the so-called Atomic Joy Buzzer. Don't know why it's so-called. Um, maybe the Atomic Joy Buzzer was already trademarked. and <laughs> This is the fake-ass Atomic Joy Buzzer. Enjoy it. Also, the Razzer. Now, the Razzer lets out a Bronx cheer at passerbys. For folks who are unaware, the Bronx cheer is a... Uh, a raspberry, you know, a, you know, a, you know that. So something I did without buying a razor device, you know, I, I think we can all do that without buying a razor device. Um, the ad promises that it's a real laugh getter. Okay, a squirt ring. Now, the squirt ring is a classic. We see it all the time, but I'm only including it here in the because of the description we get. What a beautiful ring! Dash dash. Then showers. I think one of those Marvel AIs might have wrote this copy. I mean, what a beautiful ring. Then showers. Okay. Dirty soap. Dirty soap, which is a uh, a soap that makes you dirtier the more you use it. Classic, right? I couldn't imagine this being used more than once. <laughs> By the time you use it once, I mean, you're going to see just crap everywhere. Now, the one that really, really gets me here is uh, the phony marriage license. Huh. Can I offer a fake-ass no-prize to ask how this could ever be funny? Like, what could you possibly do with a phony marriage license? You're like an eight-year-old and is like, Hey, Mom, I'm married now? I mean, what, what is the joke here? What's the gag? I, I really don't know why you'd put any money down for a phony marriage license. You could get a napkin and write marriage license on it. It's, it's, it that even might be even more funny. I don't know. This is not a laugh-getter, in my opinion, but uh, I'm putting it out there. A fake-ass no-prize to anyone who could tell me how this would work, and how this would inspire a single laugh. Now, at prices this low, you're limited to one set per customer. So, sorry, gang. You're, you're not going to be able to resell these things on eBay. But that's going to do it for the ads. Like I said, we're not going to be doing ads all the time because we're going to see these same ads, like, for the next five issues. So I'm not going to be talking about them every single time out. But if something does stand out, or if you're reading along and if you are looking at the ads and there's one that you really want me to discuss, let me know. We will uh, definitely, definitely cover it here on the show. Before we cut out of here, let's hop into our own mailbag. We have a letter from our friend Billy D. He says, Hey Chris, really enjoying the show, especially your thoughts on the letter columns and the other ephemera. Boy, old Stanley seems to get a little punchy when people talk junk about Marvel, eh? He does seem to take it in stride most of the time, though. I can't wait to hear what's coming up regarding his columns. Cheers. And yes, last time out, I did discuss that Stan will be getting a little spicy. (laughs) 
it's going to be some spicy Stan hot takes on uh, Brand Ech and the rest. It's uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to cover here because I've never seen this stuff firsthand, you know? I feel like the Stan we know and remember, uh, especially folks of my vintage, you know, he's Uncle Stan. You know, he's a, he's a member of the family. He's the fun guy who is always happy, he's always smiling, always has the fun stories. And to see firsthand him kind of just, like, laying into the books that he feels are inferior, it's a real eye-opener. And he still does it in the Stan way where it's not, like, it's not vitriolic, but you can tell there's some heart and passion behind it. And that, you know, I think a lot of revisionist history on Stan has... uh, has kind of put it out there that Stan never wanted to be in comics. He wanted to be a novelist. He thought the comics were a stepping stone of sorts and uh, would never really admit to being in comics. And there's certainly a measure of truth to that. And we can, I guess, debate how much of that is true and how much of that was taken to heart. But it can't be denied that Stan is very passionate about comics and what he feels is the level of quality and what kind of an art form comics should be here. And uh, when he sees inferior comics occupying and even pushing Marvel off the racks at some places, uh, he's not going to be quiet about it. He won't name names because Stan is a gentleman, but uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about that in future episodes, and it's, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to sharing that, and I'm also looking forward to hearing what you all think about uh, Stan's thoughts on the mid-60s industry. It's... Uh, it's going to be a fun conversation. But thank you so much for writing in, Billy, and I'm so happy that you're enjoying the uh, the back matter of the Essential X Lapsed. It's, uh, it's probably the funnest part for me because this is stuff that I haven't covered before. This is stuff that I haven't seen or read before. I've You know, we've read the comics before, but uh, putting ourselves into the gestalt of it and getting ourselves into the actual day and era, it's been a lot of fun. It's been an educational experience, and it's uh, been an absolute blast. And uh, I, I feel so happy I've been able to share that with folks who may not have uh, ever taken a look at these letters pages or bullpens or just getting to see more of Stan. You know, it's uh, it's always nice to see Stan in his element here, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. But anyway, that's going to do it for today. If anybody out there would like to reach out and say hello, I would uh, encourage you to do so. You can find me several different places uh, on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, well, you know the place. You're probably there now or thereabouts now. That's chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all of your podcast listening applications and devices. But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.